Philippians 2. Is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ? Any comfort from his love? Any fellowship together in the Spirit? Are your hearts tender and compassionate? Then make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with one another, loving one another, and working together with one mind and one purpose. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your your own interests, but take an interest in others too. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross. Therefore, God elevated him to a place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names, that at the name of Jesus every knee would bow on heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue declared that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Would you just bow and pray with me right now as we prepare to study God's word together? Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for what it teaches us and how you want us to learn from it. The passage that we're going to study today, God, Uh, It's a difficult one. It's a tough one to wrestle with the things that you went through. Help us to understand the importance of it and the meaning of it to our lives today. Help us to apply this in ways that make a difference in how we will live, not just today, but tomorrow and through the rest of the week. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning I wanted to to read Philippians chapter 2 because it's a, a beautiful passage where Paul is actually talking about the text that we're supposed to talk about today, which is in Mark 15. And I want to start by presenting you with a couple of scenarios and just see how these make you feel. See if any of these you can relate to. The first one has to do with your workplace. So imagine that you have been working on a project at work for several months. It's taken an incredible amount of your time. And along the way, your boss has continually encouraged you to keep going. You give him regular updates, and he keeps saying, yep, this is good, keep going. Yes, this is good, keep doing this. And you do this for a few months until you get about one week before your project is supposed to launch. And you send him the final plan, and he sends back an email that says one thing. I've decided we're no longer going to do this. And so you ask for more information, and you get nothing. He will give no explanations All of that work, seemingly months of work, seemingly down the drain. Here's another one. You're a student at college. You're in a class that's supposed to be kind of a gimme. This is supposed to be one of those you just show up and and you pass pretty easily. And you get to the end of the class and everybody feels like they're doing pretty good. And then the teacher gives the final comprehensive exam and it's the wrong exam. It has nothing to do with the class. The entire class flunks. So you and some of your fellow students go to the dean and you express your protest and this teacher is not willing to admit that she made a mistake and the dean says, I'm sorry, my hands are tied. I know what happened, but you're all going to have to retake that class. How does that make you feel? Here's another one. Someone just gave one of your children a toy baseball bat. And they, that, that child, in this case it's a boy, immediately takes that bat and starts to just hit his little sister with that baseball bat. So you step in and say, oh, no, 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 stop this, stop this, we're not going to do that. And he winds up and smacks you right where it counts. 
How do you feel in that moment? How do you want to react to that situation? Now, as you may have figured out, all three of those are situations that come from my life. That was my testimony right there. Now, only one of those happened this week. I'll let you guess which one that was. All of you probably have scenarios like that in your life. Difficult circumstances that you have faced. Some of them spur of the moment. Some of them building over time. And you are faced with this choice. Here's the choice that all of us face when we come to a difficult circumstance. Every time we face a difficult circumstance, this is the choice we face. Will you react or will you respond? Will you react or will you respond? Because in our natural self, we want to react with all sorts of strong emotions, anger, hatred, bitterness, despair, disgust. How could he do that to me? How could she say that thing about me? Why are you little? Come here. How could you, you know, whatever it is, we have strong emotional reactions to these difficult situations that we face in our life. And our question for this morning is, how does God want us to act, to behave, to respond to the difficult situations that come into our life? We started with Philippians chapter 2 this morning because Paul uses this section of of the book to explain the mindset that we're supposed to have when we interact with each other. What I really love about this chapter in Philippians is that Paul gives instruction, but he doesn't stop there. He then explains what he means and gives us an example. Now, when I was growing up, my dad taught me how to work with wood. Do we have any woodworkers here? You like to, to work with wood? He, he showed me by example all these different things that he would do, and eventually he would start to involve me in his projects. But he didn't just hand me a board and say, there, go make it happen. He got me the materials and he showed me the equipment and he gave me examples and he walked me around and he taught me how to use saws and drill presses and planers and lathes and all these different things. He taught me how to do those. He showed me how to use them and he gave me instruction, explained it all to me so that I could eventually do some projects of my own and be helpful to the the things that he was doing. And that's kind of what Paul is doing in Philippians chapter two. He gives instructions and then he explains those instructions a little bit more And then he gives an example. And it's that example that is so important. He starts off by saying, I want you to agree with each other. I want you to be of one mind. I want you to be united. I want you to have the same purpose. It's important to understand. And by the way, just to be clear, this is all introduction. So I see some of you pulling out your Bibles and ready to take notes. You can do that if you want to, but we're going to get into Mark in a little bit. This is just the setup for Mark, okay? I know it's going to take a little while to get there, but we'll get there. What Paul is doing here is he is giving this instruction on be of one mind, be united in purpose, be together in what you're doing. But Paul is well aware that all of us have some differences. Are we a little different from each other? I don't just mean in looks. We're different in what we think and some of the things that we believe. If you were here a few months ago, we went through this series called Undivided. How many of you were here for the Undivided series? We looked at the buckets of dogma and doctrine and conviction and preference, and we said that dogma is what we're gonna say, it's the gospel. It's the things that every believer in Jesus Christ needs to believe to be a true follower of Jesus. Doctrine are important beliefs that we believe are absolutely true, that we're gonna agree on as a church to believe together. But then we get to this bucket for convictions. And there's things that we may have personal convictions about that might differ 
And that's okay. And Paul says in Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians 10 that it's okay to have some of those differences. And then we get to preferences and we're all over the map. We have all kinds of different preferences that we have. So Paul is well aware that we're going to have differences. And yet he says, be of one mind and one purpose. You're all supposed to kind of agree on a general direction that you're supposed to go. Well, how are we supposed to do that, Paul, when we have all these differences? And here's what he says. He gives the explanation. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Don't try to impress others with how much you know or what your position is or the things that you've done in life. He says, think about the needs of others as if they are more important than your own. And I really love the way this is worded. Don't just pursue your interests, but take an interest in others. So think of a time, if you would, when you have faced an especially difficult challenge, something that brought the emotions out of you, Something that you have really struggled with. It could be something this week. It could be something from the last year. It might be something in the distant past that is still painful for you to think about. If you have that in mind, it might be a a boss who's done something uh, that was untrustworthy. It could be a teacher that, that, that did something that was wrong and you have no recourse against them. It could be a child that has hurt you or damaged something that you valued. It could be a spouse that said something hurtful to you. It could be a friend that betrayed your trust. It could be a group that rejected you, but something painful that you have experienced and the raw emotion that comes out of that as our natural self wants to to show. That is the question for us today. Will we react or will we respond? So Paul, after telling us how we're supposed to do this, don't be selfish, look for the interests of others, he gives us this example, an amazing example, and he points us back to Jesus Christ. He says, you must have the same attitude or mindset that Jesus Christ had when he gave up his high position, he came down low, and he died a death on the cross, he suffered abuse that he didn't deserve, and he went through all of that humbly for you and me. That's the kind of attitude that we are supposed to have but you don't know what he did to me. But you don't know what she said to me. But you don't know what they've been saying over there. Paul says, no, I want you to have this mindset, this attitude that Jesus had. And he points us back to this. And that's what I want to look at today in Mark. So turn to Mark chapter 15 so that we can see what Jesus did for us, what he endured for us, and why it had to be that way. And the model that Paul sets forth for us as an example of how we are supposed to live our lives. Now you can use the YouVersion Bible app if you want to. Or you can go to efree.org slash Bible on your mobile device. And you will get these passages or just turn to Mark 15 in your Bibles. Before we get into this, let me just give you some context. Because you got to have to know where we're coming from here. If, if you've missed something in the last couple of weeks, you're going to need to know a little bit of the setting. Jesus was up north around the Sea of Galilee, and he headed south with his disciples. As he headed south down with his disciples, he came down to Jerusalem, and he spent some time in Jerusalem, but in the evenings he would go out to Bethany, which was just past the Mount of Olives to the east of Jerusalem. So Jesus would go back and forth. This was just a few days ago from the passage we're going to look at today. This is a time of year when the Passover celebration was happening. 
So you had thousands of Jewish people gathered in and around Jerusalem, all over the place, pilgrims, Passover pilgrims, who were there to celebrate the Passover together. When Jesus entered the city of Jerusalem, he was cheered on by a crowd of people who thought that he was the Messiah who was going to save them from Rome. And so they were welcoming him into the city of Jerusalem. Now it's very important to understand who these people were. Because these people were not all the inhabitants of the city of Jerusalem. These people, John tells us, were Passover pilgrims and supporters of Jesus. So it's not like everybody around, there there could have been 50 to 100,000 people in the city of Jerusalem at this time. It's not like they were all in support of Jesus. In fact, they actually said, who is this guy? Who is this man? And the crowd said, the Passover pilgrims, Jesus supporters, all of these people said, it's Jesus of Nazareth. I mean, don't you know this guy? And some of them obviously didn't. So it's not like the whole crowd was in support of Jesus. And many of these people, these Passover pilgrims, they were actually there because they had heard that Jesus just raised Lazarus from the dead over in Bethany. So they were there to marvel at this man who clearly must have had some powers so that he could maybe overthrow Rome. And they welcomed him in as this Messiah. So many of those people in Jerusalem, they were not cheering Jesus. They were the city folk. And it was all the country folk that seemed to know what was going on. So Jesus went on now to teach his disciples to prepare them for what they were about to experience and go through together. They shared a Passover meal, what we call the Last Supper, what we're going to remember, commemorate today. Then Jesus went to the Garden of Gethsemane. He spent time in prayer. His disciples, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, could not stay up with him and support him and pray for him. They weren't a very helpful small group. And so Jesus prayed and he wept and he sweat drops of blood because of what he was about to go through, the emotional agony that he was experiencing is something that we, we just can't, we can't even begin to fathom. And then Judas showed up and he betrayed Jesus with a kiss. And the temple guards came and arrested Jesus and took him away. And they tried him in the house of the high priest. And the Jewish religious leaders held a trial. They accused Jesus of being a blasphemer. They brought in witnesses who couldn't keep their story straight, Mark says, in the last chapter, chapter 14. But still, they found him guilty of blasphemy. They sentenced him to die. And that catches you up to where we are today. Look at verse one of Mark 15. It says very early in the morning. Now let me tell you why it had to be early in the morning. They're about to take Jesus to Pilate, the Roman governor. And Roman governors, we know from other sources, would only see people in the mornings. First thing in the morning, if you wanted to get in to see Pilate and have him judge on something, you had to get there right away. So very early in the morning, the leading priests, the elders, and the teachers of religious law, the entire high council, that's known as the Sanhedrin, they met to discuss their next step. They bound Jesus, led him away, and took him to Pilate, the Roman governor. Now this seemed very strange to me. Why would you take a man who came willingly, who stopped his own followers from defending him and submitted himself to this arrest and this process, why would you take that man and bind him before taking him to the Roman governor? That doesn't make a a lot of sense to me. 
Why would, why would they need to do that? Well, as I've been researching this, I found some interesting things. This was all about the optics and the, the political climate. We're going to talk a lot about history today and what happens surrounding this passage because it helps us to understand what's happening here. The, the climate that they're in right now is that a couple of years earlier, the Sanhedrin, the religious leadership, lost the ability to hand out judgments on things, especially capital punishment. They used to be able to weigh in on matters that pertain to Jewish people, make their decision, and their decision was final, and they could go execute people. But just recently, just before this, the Roman government said, no, you can't do that anymore. Now, only our governors can issue death sentences. So even though Jesus, back in chapter 14, was at this trial where they brought these false accusations and, and accused him of blasphemy, and they said, what's your sentence? Guilty, he deserves to die. They issued a death sentence. They couldn't carry it out. So they had to bring him to the Roman governor, Pilate, to see this sentence through. Here's the problem. Pilate was not a big fan of the Jewish people or the Jewish God for that matter. Pilate had no interest in uh, following through with their sentence of blasphemy. Pilate doesn't care if somebody blasphemes the Jewish God. What difference does that make to him? He might give him a pat on the back. That's a great thing as far as he's concerned. Josephus, the, Josephus, the Jewish historian, and Philo of Alexandria both write about how Pilate was pretty harsh on the Jewish people. So what were they going to do? Change the charges. The charges they would bring against Jesus were charges of treason, of treachery against the Roman government. Nothing about blasphemy, which is what they had actually tried and convicted him of in their trial. This was all going to be about a revolutionary who was trying to usurp the the throne in Israel from the Romans. And so that's why Pilate in the next verse says, are you the king of the Jews? Because this is the charge they brought against him. He says he's the king of the Jews, and so he's a threat to Caesar. He's a threat to the Roman Empire, as if he's going to try to overthrow Rome. Jesus replied, you have said it. Then the leading priests kept accusing him of many crimes. Now Luke tells us what those crimes were. Number one, he says that they were, he was subverting the nation. Number two, he opposed paying taxes to Caesar. Now does anyone remember what Jesus said about paying taxes to Caesar? He said, you should do it. But they accused him of opposing paying taxes to Caesar. And the third thing Luke says that Jesus was accused of is claiming to be a king. And so they brought these charges against him. Nothing about blasphemy, just things that they thought would get Pilate to turn against Jesus. And Mark says that even they they couldn't get their story straight about the blasphemy stuff. It was just a sham trial. The whole thing was an absolute sham. So they claimed treason. And then in verse four, Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer them? Because Jesus remained completely silent to these charges. What about all these charges they are bringing against you? But Jesus said nothing, much to Pilate's surprise. Pilate couldn't believe Jesus' composure in this moment. See, normally someone who is accused of these types of things would know You face certain death if you can't defend yourself. You have to give some explanation here. These are not small crimes. Rome was not kind to even the hint of treason, of revolt. 
He would lose his life if he didn't defend himself. And yet here he stands, calm, composed, no excuses, no explanation, just allowing these charges to continue. No defendant would do that. But see, Jesus knew this was God's will. He may have looked like he had a death wish to Pilate. But this was not some emotionless stoic who was just willing to endure anything that came to him. We saw just a few hours earlier in the Garden of Gethsemane that Jesus wept bitterly and sweat drops of blood and and was in anguish over what he was about to experience. Jesus was not emotionless. Jesus was not some robot going through this. He had strong emotional reaction to this, passionate reaction to this. And yet here he stands silent. Why? Wouldn't Jesus at least say something to defend himself? You ever wondered that? I've wondered that many times. I don't understand why Pilate, who we know thought Jesus was innocent, why would Jesus not at least give him a little bit of information to say, you're right, that they're wrong? Why wouldn't he answer these charges in any way? The only way to understand that is if you understand the Roman laws at the time. See, if a person was accused of something three times, there were three, three times charges were brought against them, and they did not respond to those charges, they proceeded directly to trial without much of a defense. If Jesus had responded to these charges, Pilate could have opened an investigation that would have drawn all of this out and could have even resulted in Pilate concluding, I'm not going to crucify this man. Jesus remained silent and it expedited his trial because after these charges were brought against him with no response from Jesus, they had to proceed with the charges as they were given without much of a defense at all. Look at verse six. Now it was the governor's custom each year during the Passover celebration to release one prisoner, anyone the people requested. One of the prisoners at that time was Barabbas, a revolutionary who had committed murder in an uprising. Let's get to know Barabbas a little bit, shall we? Barabbas is kind of an interesting figure. We don't know a lot about him, but what we do know about him is kind of interesting. We know that Barabbas wasn't his name. Barabbas is, is a clarifying name. It's like a surname. It, it actually means bar Abbas, son of Abba, son of the father. We don't know what father that means. There are some theories about that. But that wasn't his real name. We have a little bit of evidence about what his real given name was. I have to be honest with you, we can't be 100% certain that it was this. But the only evidence we have to what his first name was is Jesus. So it is very possible that Pilate was dealing with one man, Jesus of Nazareth, the man who the crowd wanted to be a revolutionary, to overthrow Rome, but had a completely different idea in mind for what it meant to be a Messiah. And another man, Jesus Barabbas, who actually was a revolutionary, who did try to overthrow Rome. And these are the two people in front of Pilate. In fact, one commentator actually says that it's very possible that as Pilate was interacting with the crowd here, he may have at one point in this dialogue misunderstood the chance of the crowd and thought that they were saying Jesus of Nazareth instead of Jesus Barabbas because of the similarity of the sounds and the chance of the crowd. We don't know any of that for certain, but it's fascinating to think about the contrast between these two men whose fate lies in Pilate's hands. 
Verse 8, the crowd went to Pilate and asked him to release a prisoner as usual. This was an annual custom for the, for the Roman governors. They would come in here on Passover and to kind of appease the, the Jewish people that were there, they would release someone that they asked for, that they wanted, who was in the prison system. And in this case, this crowd, they got up very early to be there. That's when you had to do this. They came out and they almost certainly had someone already in mind. This crowd probably came there with the intent purpose of bringing out Barabbas. He was a hero to them. He was a revolutionary. He was someone that had mounted this insurrection. To Rome, he was a murderer, yes, because he killed people in that insurrection. But to the Jewish people, he had been trying to overthrow Rome. So they were big fans of his. This wasn't just some common criminal. This was a guy who they probably all turned out there agreeing ahead of time, this is the one we're going to ask for. This is kind of our local guy that we want to see come out here. But Pilate wanted to release Jesus. He's thinking maybe these religious leaders are just a little upset by Jesus. So maybe I can get the crowd to want to see Jesus of Nazareth released instead of this Barabbas guy. So he says, would you like me to release to you this king of the Jews? For he realized by now that the leading priests had arrested Jesus out of envy. He saw through it. He knew exactly what was going on. This guy didn't do anything wrong. The whole system that these religious leaders have set up, which gives them power and and authority and control and money in many cases, that whole system was being threatened by Jesus. And Pilate saw it. He knew that what they were doing, they were doing out of envy. And so he wanted to release Jesus. But at this point, the leading priests stirred up the crowd to demand the release of Barabbas instead of Jesus. And this probably wasn't that hard to do. Because this was not the crowd that had been praising Jesus on Sunday. This was a crowd that came here for the express purpose of getting a prisoner released. And they didn't know Jesus would be one of those prisoners. It was likely Barabbas who they came to see released. And of course, the high priest or the priests in general wanted to make sure that this crowd did not demand the wrong revolutionary. You got to get the right guy. We want Barabbas so that Jesus can be crucified. Pilate asked them, then what should I do with this man? You call the king of the Jews. They shouted back, crucify him. Why, Pilate demanded, what crime has he committed? But the mob roared even louder, crucify him. See, I've often heard it said that the same crowd that cheered Jesus on Sunday condemned him on Friday. But these are two different crowds. These people are here most likely to see the release of Barabbas not the Passover pilgrims and supporters who cheered Jesus on a few days earlier. Remember, even Jesus' closest supporters all ran away at this point. Jesus is completely alone. So to pacify the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them and he ordered Jesus flogged with a lead-tipped whip, then turned him over to the Roman soldiers to be crucified. And John actually tells us in his gospel that Pilate tried another time to bring Jesus out before the crowd after the beating to say, isn't this good enough? Can't we release him now? And the crowd shouted back, crucify him. And the religious leaders, here's what they said. The religious leaders said, if you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. See, they knew exactly what they were doing. They were playing to Pilate's weakness here. You are no friend of Caesar. See, I wondered as I was going through this this week, Why would Pilate be so concerned about following the will of the crowd? 
Why do you think that is? Why would it be that he would just bow to the wishes of the leading priests and the crowd here? Why does he want to appease them so much? You have to understand a little bit of something about the context that was happening in the Roman government at that time. Pilate was appointed governor by a man named Sejanus. And Sejanus was the advisor to the emperor Tiberius. Tiberius wanted to relax for a little while, so he allowed Sejanus to take over the empire. And Sejanus basically ran the empire for a while, and he was no friend of the Jewish people. He was anti-Semitic, and so he allowed Pilate to be as harsh as he wanted with the Jewish people. Well, at one point, Sejanus decided, hey, this whole emperor thing is a pretty good gig. I could get used to this. And so he tried to take over the throne from the emperor, but the emperor found out. And so he uncovered this coup and he had Sejanus and all of his supporters executed. This is the climate that Pilate finds himself in. A very dangerous time to be a governor appointed by the man who just tried to overthrow the Roman emperor. Now at this point, the emperor didn't seem to think there was reason to remove Pilate, but what he did do is he issued a decree to all of his governors to say, you are no longer to instigate the local people to revolt against Rome. You need to make sure that they stay content, happy, satisfied. That meant that Pilate was under a tremendous amount of pressure because he both had to keep the local people from rebelling like Barabbas and others had tried to do, but he also had to keep them happy. All it would have taken was an envoy from Jerusalem, maybe instigated by these priests, to go to Rome and say, hey, that guy Pilate, he was real close with Sejanus. And Pilate would be gone. This is why they say, if you release him, you are no friend of Caesar's. They are playing to Pilate's weaknesses. And so Pilate feels that he has to bow to the will of the crowd. Now, this Pilate guy is a very interesting one to study. I'm just going to throw a little, little something in here that I found really, really cool. Sometimes we read these stories and we almost approach them like a fairy tale. Like, did this really happen? But when you study this guy, Pilate, you see all this history around him. And that's just one of the things that I want to point out to you today is that we're talking about real people here. We're talking about a guy who really lived 2,000 years ago. Philo of Alexandria wrote about him. Josephus, the historian, wrote about him. Those were both guys that lived in this time period. And just a few decades ago, get this, a few decades ago, this stone was found in Israel. It's a stone that was intended as a plaque for a building that was dedicated. And here's what the inscription, it's a little hard to read now, but here's what the inscription says. Pontius Pilate, prefect of Judea, has presented the Tiberium to the Caesareans. So we're talking about real verifiable history here. The archaeological record continues to prove that what the Bible says is true. And so Pilate really existed. And he was in this very difficult spot that he had to appease the crowd and yet keep them from rebelling. And that is why he was willing to allow a man that he knows was innocent to be crucified. So look at verse 16. The soldiers took Jesus into the courtyard of the governor's headquarters called the Praetorium and called out the entire regiment. They dressed him in a purple robe and they wove thorn branches into a crown. They put it on his head. Then they saluted him and taunted, Hail, King of the Jews. And they struck him on the head with a reed stick, spit on him, and dropped to their knees in mock worship. When they were finally tired of mocking him, 
They took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him again and then led him away to be crucified. Just think with me for a moment about what Jesus endured for us. The abuse that he went through that he did not deserve and yet he willingly subjected himself to it. He could have pressed the escape button at any time. At any time, he could have played the God card. He could have said, boom, and they're all gone. Or he could have said, angels, come down and protect me. He could have done all of this stuff, but he didn't. He allowed himself, he humbly submitted himself to go through this because he knows this is God's will for him. Now, I want to draw your attention to something that we covered back in April. This is in Mark chapter 10, verse 33. Jesus was making his way toward Jerusalem a different time with his disciples. And here's what he says in Mark 10, 33. He said, we're going up to Jerusalem. It's down south, but it's up in elevation. We're going up to Jerusalem where the son of man will be betrayed to the leading priests and the teachers of religious law. They will sentence him to die and hand him over to the Romans. They will mock him spit on him, flog him with a whip and kill him. But after three days, he will rise again. This is an amazing prediction that Jesus made of exactly what would happen to him. That he would be arrested by the religious leaders. They would try him. They would sentence him to death, but they couldn't follow through on it. So they handed him over to the Romans who would mock him, spit on him, flog him with a whip and kill him. But then there was the hope that three days later, he would rise again. Everything that Jesus predicted was now coming true. And Paul, writing three decades later to the believers in Philippi, would point back to this time and say, remember how Jesus went through that? Remember how we talked about that together? All the things he experienced, the abuse he endured? That's the kind of attitude I'm talking about. That's the kind of mindset I'm talking about. And then he gives them three things, three key things that Jesus showed in this process. So what we're going to really do here is we're going to look at Paul's application of this text. What did Jesus go through and how can we learn from that? He gives us three things to have the attitude of Christ Jesus. Here's the first one. He sacrificed his privileges to help others. He was God after all. He could have played the God card at any time and gotten out of whatever was facing him, but he didn't. He sacrificed those privileges that he had because he came to serve, not just to be served. Number two, he assumed a low position. Jesus had every right to demand special treatment. Jesus could have come and been born to a royal family or a wealthy family. But no, he was born to a young woman who was certainly not wealthy. She was rich in character, but not in possessions. Jesus came in a lowly fashion. Number three, he humbled himself in obedience to God. Even while he was experiencing something that we know was agonizing for him, he followed through with it, choosing to remain silent rather than defend himself so that he could go through that process and be crucified in our place and take on the sins of the world in our place. He humbly submitted himself in obedience to God. So my question for you today is very simple. How can we have the same attitude, the same mindset that Jesus had? 
And the best way I think to explore this is just to take these three things that Paul says and turn them into questions. So here are the questions for you. Ask them of yourself. Write them down if you want to. Think about the answers to these questions. Number one, how can you sacrifice your privileges to help others? How can you sacrifice whatever you have to help other people? Now, one easy example we talked about earlier, it's the Take Back Black Friday offering. Spend less so that you can give more to what God is doing around the world. Spend less on Black Friday. Spend less on material goods. Spend less on Christmas presents, whatever it is, so that you can sacrificially give to what God is doing around the world. That's one way you could do this. Maybe this means sacrificing some of your time to reach out to your neighbors. Maybe this means sacrificing some of your possessions, selling some of the things that you have so that you can give to God or help other people or just giving them to other people who need them. But how can you sacrifice your privileges so that you can help other people just like Jesus did? Number two, how can you take a humble position as a servant regardless of your title or status? Maybe you own a company. How do you serve your employees How do you show them that you value them and care for them? How do you serve them? Not just give them direction, but how do you serve them? Maybe you're a parent. How do you demonstrate to your children service to them? How are you serving your kids? Not taking your position or your title as meaning special privileges for you, but being willing to be made low, to be humble, to be a servant, regardless of your title or your position. Maybe you are influential. Maybe you are popular. Maybe you're really good at talking with people. Maybe you're the life of the party. How can you take a humble position as a servant? Maybe by leveraging that popularity, that influence, that extroversion, whatever it is that you have, to help people who have a hard time connecting. Maybe it's as simple as coming here early to church and finding people that are sitting alone and going up and talking to them and just being friendly. And sacrificing those extra few minutes of oh-so-precious sleep. And believe me, I know, it is precious. But how can you be a humble servant regardless of your status, your title, whatever it is? Number three, where is God looking for humble obedience in your life today? It could be something that God has been prompting you in your heart on for a long time and you just keep resisting because you're not sure about it. And you're wondering, should I really step out in this way? Should I really do this? I don't feel prepared. I don't feel ready. I don't feel like I know enough. And yet I keep feeling like God is just drawing me in this way to get involved in this thing. And please understand me, I am not saying that you should be foolish. I am saying if it's something that aligns with the word of God and it's something that you have prayed about and you've sought wise counsel about and it's basically just you and your fear that's keeping you from doing this, how can you humbly submit to where God is leading and say, I will follow you in obedience, God, with whatever you want me to go through, even if it's gonna be hard, even if it takes me outside my comfort zone, even if it stretches me in ways that I'd really like to not be stretched because Jesus was willing to do that for us. Having the mindset, having the attitude of Jesus. God isn't looking for people who know it all. If that's what he was looking for, he wouldn't find very many. He's looking for people like you who might say, I don't think I know how to do that, or I have that figured out, or I could serve in that way, but I serve a God who can work through me in this. And so I'm going to trust him to work through me, even though this might be really challenging for me to humbly serve God in obedience wherever he wants us to serve. 
When we step out, when we sacrifice our privileges, when we position ourselves as humble servants, when we follow in obedience to what God wants us to do, guess what? We don't get the glory. God gets the glory. And isn't that what he wants? To draw glory to himself. And how we do that is by having the mindset, the attitude of Jesus. Would you bow your heads in prayer with me? God, it is humbling to think of what you went through for us. We certainly do not deserve it. But we are thankful for it. And we remember today that sacrifice, not just by practicing communion and going through this process of remembering you, but also throughout our lives every day, Lord, by having the mindset and the attitude that you showed us how to have that Paul pointed us to, I pray that you would help us to live out that model that you showed us, that our kids would see it, that our friends would see it, that our spouses would see it, that the people that we work with would see it, the people we go to school with would see it, would see that, hey, there's something different about you. And we could say, it's not me. It's nothing I could do. I'm not that good. It is Jesus working through me. It is the attitude, the mindset of Jesus that I've surrendered to him. I pray that you'd help us to do that, Lord. And in your name, I pray, amen.